0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. It's it's such a pleasure to practice with others, even if I'm alone in this room, just knowing that uh, you're on the other side of these screens. So thank you. So Gil, Max Erdstein and I are teaching a course on ethics. I think it's, I'm not exactly sure now, maybe 10 months long, 8, 9, 10, 11 months around there. And it's a lot of fun. You know, sometimes this whole topic of ethics just feels like, oh, really? Like, I don't want to be told a whole bunch of rules or the sense of morality just feels heavy and something that's not so interesting. But we're approaching it in a way that I'm finding really delightful, and I know some of the students are as well. And the way that we are approaching it is less as a set of rules, because that's, you know, marginally helpful. What's really helpful is some ways to navigate our lives some ways to make decisions, to help us with decision-making and choosing which direction to go, what to do, these types of things. That's really helpful and useful. So in this ethics class, we started with um, just some foundations, this idea of wholesomeness and this idea of um, care and compassion. And we're now... Um, into the precepts, looking at each of the precepts, spending a little bit more time with each one. And we recently finished uh, the second precept, um, to not take that which is not given. It's a little bit stilted way of saying it. It's kind of like saying not stealing, but uh, the Buddhists have a little bit higher or different um, conception of it, that it's Things have to be offered. And then we get into all these questions about ownership and offering and all kinds of things. But that's not what I want to talk about tonight. Instead, it's just this idea of how we navigate our lives, how we make decisions, in so many of the mundane things that we do. I know sometimes when we think about the Dharma and the teachings of the Buddha, we might have these lofty ideas, which is fantastic. And certainly there are plenty of those that can be helpful and supportive. But we might also sometimes feel like some of these little corners of our lives, these mundane corners of our lives, we don't really bring the Dharma to. So the uh, Last few times that I've given a talk on Monday nights, I've talked about some of these mundane things like New Year's resolutions and how we can bring the Dharma to them. And maybe I'd like to continue on that vein and share a story that we shared in, this, in the ethics course and to talk about some of the ideas, but not the ones that we sh- talked about in the ethics course. I'm going to bring in some other ideas just highlighting how there are so many different practices or teachings that we can bring to just ordinary activities in a way that support us and nourish us, coach us, guide us, inspire us, without feeling like it's this heavy Burdensome thing that we have to do on top of our ordinary life. Instead, it just it gets uh, woven in, integrated with, in such a way that it's a support. So, there's two stories that we talked about. One was, as I said, with the second precept, and another story we talked about in this ethics class at the beginning when we were talking about some of the foundations of ethics and they have a common theme and I'm sure you'll pick up the common theme but this first one that I'm going to share is, in some ways it's kind of silly it's a poem that rhymes, that has a particular meter and it's colorful and but part of the beauty of it is that it's kind of mundane but there can be some real depths also to it This story, I tried to figure, to discover, like when it was first published, and I couldn't find it. I did find some reference that somebody had said, um, it first came out in the 90s, but it was originally written in the 80s, but I didn't actually see the publications at that time. So I don't really know. And honestly, I don't even remember where I heard this first. It might've been in a Dharma talk, something, yeah, right? That's how all of us Dharma teachers, we just hear um, when we're co-teaching or when we just hear other uh, Dharma teachers and we just pass around uh, all the same stories. So hopefully you haven't heard this one too many times. Okay, so maybe um, I won't uh, say the name of the poem and the artist, the poet, until after the end. So that... um, Just, yeah, I'll I'll wait till the end. Here we go. A woman was waiting at the airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read, munched cookies, and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I weren't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half and he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother! This guy has some nerve and he's also so rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There were her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. So this kind of uh, amusing poem is called The Cookie Thief by Valerie Cox. C-O-X is her last name. Right? So this scene unfolds at the airport, and this woman has this whole entire story created about the person next to her. She's getting angry. She even has this uh, saying, what is this? Um, If I weren't so nice, I'd blacken his eye, right? (laughs) Getting quite angry, right? This, This bewilderment and anger is coming up and then right when she gets on the airplane and discovers that indeed she has her own bag of cookies just in that moment right just that moment it doesn't take any moment longer everything gets reinterpreted oh right i'm the thief i'm the ingrate i'm the one that uh was um not behaving so nicely. <laughs> right? It just took a flash. So there's uh, so many things that we can learn from this story. But one thing that I'd like to look at too right now, maybe there's two things. One is, as I just mentioned, the view. The view of this person that was sitting beside her, she had, he was a thief, he was ingrate, he was rude, had this whole story, right, by something he was doing, and that how it could change in a flash. So this view, this idea, this opinion, they're really insubstantial. They're fleeting. They are not the something that is uh, going to stick around forever. And all it took was for her to have one piece of information for her to look in her baggage and to see her bag of cookies. So just this recognition that we have ideas, we have Views, we have opinions, and sometimes we hold on to them so tightly we're willing to threaten somebody to blacken their eye, picking that these views. And all it takes is one additional piece of information to, for us to realize oh, we're completely mistaken. So why are we holding so tightly to our views? A, they can disappear, poof, they can be gone, just like that. With just one little piece of information. And she had plenty of data, we might say, to support her, right? That he kept on taking the cookies. But he even uh, broke it in half and shared with her. But that didn't change her opinion. She had already set this view of this poor person sitting behind her, sitting beside her. She already had made up her her opinion about how he was. Even though he did something that didn't uh, suggest that he was a mean, ungrateful person or a thief. I don't think a thief would share things. So, it's just a reminder to all of us. We have views about ourselves, about others. We may have data to support it, right? There's reasons why we have views. But we don't have to hold on to them so tightly, so much so that we're willing to villainize other people and willing to make them the bad person, right? And she says, if I weren't so nice Blacken his eye, right? So she kind of builds herself up. I'm the good one, he's the bad one, and has kind of this righteous indignation that's building and building and building until just one piece of information. So in the story, just a reminder for all of us that not to hold on so tightly to our views. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment here. But also, this um, idea that just having one more piece of information, one more idea, is enough to really completely transform the way that she thought about that, like the way that she thought about that whole scene that uh, unfolded while she was waiting for her flight this part of what insight is for insight meditation is we start to see things we start and seeing and there's this understanding and then our our interpretation or the way we move through the world or understand the world starts to shift and change based on that information based on seeing things differently so these insights are a way that it's a new way of seeing that also relieves suffering. That's kind of a, maybe the traditional way that we might think of a uh, insight in this tradition. Is it's also tied to the lessening of suffering, because this is all going towards freedom, greater and greater freedom. So this idea of we might have a new understanding, but that it's also linked to less suffering, and we might say that the woman in the story that she had. Uh, a little bit more suffering at the moment when she discovered. But unfortunately, maybe she didn't take the opportunity to really harvest all the different insights that could have been there. So... Maybe before I go on and start to talk a little bit more about insights, I will say that during this ethics class, we have talked about a number of different things, right, related specifically to the second precept, the nature of stealing, what does it mean to steal, and if people really know, are you stealing, or the nature of ownership, what is it like to own things, the importance of generosity, the importance of communication, right, a few words (laughs) between this woman and this man might have made a world of difference, They could have discovered uh, love of the same kind of cookies and chatted and become friends. And who knows if they were both single, could have been their true loves. (laughs) They were traveling to the same uh, location. Maybe they were even neighbors and they didn't know it. You know, like a whole story, right, that I'm creating here. But my point is, if they had spoken to one another, right, of course it would have uh, changed. But they didn't. And This, she could have, not only this woman could have, and maybe she did, right? We don't know what happened after she realized that she was actually the one that was taking his cookies. But this idea of insight is central, right, to this uh, path of practice. And the Buddha points to many times, in many different ways, points to the the importance of not clinging to views, but instead there's this alternative to creating views that we really hold on to, or these beliefs. Of course we're going to create views. It's uh, it's human nature, and we need to, in order to navigate our lives, navigate the world, friend or foe, harmful, helpful. right? We have some of these initial um, ideas, but the Buddha, so the Buddha is not pointing to you not doing some of these human things, but holding them lightly, not clinging to them, and not using them as something for us to build up our own sense of self, for us to kind of like bolster any sense of self that we might have, but instead just to say, well, it seems like there's a misunderstanding here. But in particular, because um one thing we might learn from this story, or this woman might have learned this story, is something about the nature of experiences how for example i'm I'm highlighting that the moment that she had this additional information then how everything just flipped and switched, her understanding her interpretation of everything happened so. There was this one story, this one view that arose and then passed away. This man is ungrateful. He's a thief. He's rude. I can't believe he's taking my cookies. And then, bam, that she no longer thinks that of that person. So the Buddha pointed to the value for us to notice the arising and passing away of experiences the arising and passing away, of our holding to a view, sometimes we don't recognize how we're holding to a view until we let it go. But the, the tremendous power this has in our life to notice, oh yeah, impermanence, the arising and passing. And if we notice this, intentionally bring our mind to it, or when we Notice it um, because it's so obvious that just to allow the mind and the heart to linger in the, the noticing of the impermanence, just so that we don't so readily forget it and try to make things concretize and substantiate and permatize um, so many of our experiences and our views because it leads to suffering. We know this, right? Clinging to anything, including our views and beliefs leads to suffering. So, of course, the Buddha was pointing to that our experiences are inconstant, they're always changing, they're fleeting, they arise and they pass away. But he also pointed to some other qualities of our experiences. This triad of gratification, danger, and escape is the way that Bhikkabodhi translates them. So, all of our experiences do have some, can be a sense of there's a gratification there, like something is, um, something that's maybe, even if it's really fleetingly, it can be fulfilling in some kind of way. There's this, the, they can create the conditions for pleasure and joy, but sometimes just having sense experiences can be satisfying. But I have to be careful here, right? It's not any lasting happiness. It's not any lasting satisfaction, right? Because they're impermanent. And so there is this little bit of gratification. And we might say in this poem, this story was she was enjoying the cookies. We might say that she was enjoying her righteous indignation. She was enjoying, if I weren't so nice, I'd blacken his eye, right? She's Look what a nice person she is. She's not yelling at him or <laughs> or blackening his eye or something like this right? So there can be this gratification is the word that sometimes get used for this, but all of these experiences also have kind of the danger. maybe danger is too strong of a word, but this idea that our experiences don't last forever. So even if they are bringing pleasure and joy, they're going to end. And that's going to bring the opposite of pleasure and joy, sorrow and grief of some magnitude, maybe not to the same magnitude, but there's often, sometimes there's this little bit of fear, like when is this going to end? Or a little bit of distress. How long is this going to last? that's often, you know, bubbling underneath so many of our experiences. This poem, we do see her becoming more and more agitated. And as I said earlier, she had missed an opportunity to maybe have a connection with somebody who was traveling the same place she was traveling. So the Buddha talked about that. notice they arise and pass away, there's gratification, there's danger, and there's escape. So escape is this removal of the things wanting to be different, this ending of kind of like leaning forward, this greediness for them. And we see this, we have this experience temporarily when we meditate. There can be, can be when we sit Sense of contentment, quiet, even if it's just for a few moments, and even if that's not our dominant experience, but just to know that that can be part of our experience can be enormously helpful. And then, of course, the ultimate escape from the dissatisfaction of uh, or the danger of experiences is awakening, where The person is no longer fooled into wanting to cling or substantiate or concretize, reify our experiences or our views. And it's helpful to create the condition so that we can see the rising and passing of our experiences and the gratification, danger, and escape of them. And this is a big part of why we meditate. Just to allow some settling down. If we're always running around, rushing around, we'll never really notice that the. We will notice, but it doesn't really register. We don't really take it in and let the ramifications affect us. If that things are inconstant, arise and pass away, and are changing. So. The Cookie Thief. Perfect title, right? It starts out, he is the cookie thief, and at the end, she is the cookie thief. The stories of cookies and at the airport. There's much more I could say on this poem. And maybe you have some of your own ideas on this. But now I'd like to shift gears a little bit and read a second story that we shared in this ethics class, and also has cookies and an airport. And this one is a little bit different. This, and um, at the end, I'll share the title of the poem and the poet. And this poem is maybe written more in prose style. Wandering around the Albuquerque Airport terminal after learning my flight had been delayed four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of Gate A4 understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate A4 was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled on the floor, wailing. Help, said the flight agent. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke haltingly. Shudawa min fadlik with a <laughs> with a asking for forgiveness on how terrible i'm probably I'm probably butchering this, so my apologies. So she speaks this little bit of Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, no, we're fine. You'll get there just later. Who is picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son. I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and ride next to her. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling of her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamoul cookies little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts from our bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out free apple juice from the huge, from huge coolers, and two little girls from our flight ran around serving it, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves, such an old country Tradition always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones, and I thought, This is the world I want to live in the shared world. Not a single person in that gate, once the crying of confusion stopped seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So this poem or story is called Gate A4, by Naomi Shihab Nye. Naomi Shihab Nye is a Buddhist practitioner. And I believe uh, she's even like practiced with the San Francisco Zen Center. And she's, um, I think her as a Palestinian father and American mother and grew up in both Palestine, I believe, and Texas. She insists, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in that gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. cookies, and airports. May all beings be free from suffering and may they recognize that not everything is lost. This can still happen. Thank you.